Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were still gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come down, I'm sorry, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. God, passages like this make us think of our missionaries, so we lift them up tonight. We want to start with the Woodalls, our missionaries to China, as they are soon to have their own child. We pray for Mallory's pregnancy, and that you also supply everything they need on the mission field. Father, we pray secondly for Youth Call. As they go to Cambodia, that you fill these students with your spirit, and that there would be works done amongst them that proclaim you are indeed a God that is active on this earth and you are king of the earth. And we also want to lift up the Potter's Field Ministries and Michelle here who represents them, that you would grace each and every one of those missionary trips to the multiple countries they're going to this year, and particularly that you'd grace Michelle with your power to lead the team in Uganda and free them, Father, from hostilities against one another, but you'd unify that team for the purpose of your gospel going to all nations. But Father, mostly overlooked, I want to pray for every student here tonight that they indeed would take on the missionary calling in our local areas here. Father, that you would equip all of us to do your work, that this would no longer be a game of missionaries and pastors, but that this would be the identity of Tree of Life, that we are those who take your calling to bring your restoration to all nations wherever you plant us. So I pray you speak to us through your word. Father, that your voice calls your sheep and that we would follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight is that night where we've done 20 sermons about God's story and the whole thing is history because it's His story. And we've been trying to find our place in God's story. And this is that night where we find that place. We've been hinting at it for 20 sermons. But here in the 21st, we've got it right here. Jesus looks at you through the apostles and says, this is what my church is to do. So we've come to that moment. 
where we are now in the present as we look at the Bible. Yes, Acts was written in the 80s, 70s, or what have you. It was written you know, a long time ago. The people lived way long ago. But what he said to them has not changed because we are of the same church. Church has not changed. Church is still the... Um, Jesus is a foundation. The, the, the apostles are built upon him and we are built upon them. So we're the same building with the same mission. And we look tonight at what Jesus says to us in this 21st century. 21st. <laughs> How do you not know that? I don't know. So for context and review sake, since we've done 20 sermons on his story, let's real quick put ourselves right now in context to what the story has said and... Then, wham, here we are. So, God's story opens very dark, very dismal, very lifeless. Genesis 1-2, that there was darkness and that the earth was covered with waters. There was no life. And then in Genesis 1-3, he speaks ten times. And life comes as a result. And it's, a cre- it's, it's creation. And this creation is his kingdom that he's building. And he's speaking with the oracles and authority of a king. And he chooses a garden in the middle of all of this creation. A garden called Eden to make his headquarters. The king's throne is in Eden. Eden is where the king lives. Eden is where that sphere of God's control meets the sphere of man, where heaven meets earth. And then he creates Adam to be his servant, to be his under king. Adam is to rule over creation underneath God. So God's kingship is coming through Adam across the globe. And Adam's job is to start in Eden and to cultivate this garden until it reaches and expands to the ends of the earth. But that's not how the story went. Adam, as early as the third chapter, ruins it. And he does so because he chooses that God's idea of kingship and his kingdom is not quite as good as Adam's idea. Adam buys into the serpent's story that Adam can be in control of his own destiny. Adam can control the laws of his own kingdom. And Adam can make the purpose of it whatever he wants. And so when he takes from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, or whatever it was, and he eats from it, he rebels against the kingship of God. And the result is what we all experience today. Vanity, futility, emptiness, curse is the biblical word. And Adam is exiled from Eden. He's separated and cast out. And this is where man has had to make a living for himself on a cursed earth because he decides that God's kingship and his story for man's life is not adequate. Man would rather be his own king and write his own story. So, in the midst of this new Genesis, if you will, once again, we now look at at Adam's descendants. And the scene again is dark. The scene again is chaotic waters. The flood recedes. And and man is back at it again. We want to be king. And corruption fills the earth. And in the midst of this bad scene, God makes a new creation. He, He elects Abraham and says, Abraham, you are to go 
your offspring are going to spread and do what Adam didn't do. They're to take my hopes of restoring, bringing man back to Eden. They're to take that to all nations. So we see the birth of Israel. And Israel's mission was not to be some holy, mighty kingdom. And all the nations say, oh, gee, isn't God great because they're so mighty. Their mission was to be servants to the nations and to bring them to Jerusalem where they'd meet with God. But the story repeats once again. And Israel's kings, the new Adams of the land, are just like Adam. We don't follow God. We're doing our own thing. And God kicks them out of their land. They're exiled. And now, more recently in our series, we pick up with Jesus. Jesus is the king himself who steps down into, or maybe I should say properly, reveals himself to creation. I do not like the phrasing, he steps down into creation, because that implies heaven somewhere distant, and he suddenly appeared, as if we believe in deism. (laughs) He's been with us, but he manifests himself when he's born. And he, he's there to restore creation to its Edenic state and restore the nations to living there with God. That's his purpose. Now, Jesus doesn't use the word restoration. He uses the word kingdom. To Jesus, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is the same message of restoration. To Jesus, man is restored to God and will live in the Edenic state through the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes to announce that it's here and to establish it. So he's saying, the king is back in charge. Man won't be in charge anymore. And if you want restoration... It's time to say goodbye to your story, take off your crown, and live in mine, and worship me as the king. So, in order to show that this is indeed good news, that we're to give up our story and live in God's and crown him as king, to show that that's good news, Jesus enacts what it looks like to come into the restored kingdom by performing miracles. And the miracles are the reversal of the curse we all live in. People can't walk, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak, they're oppressed by demons. And Jesus reverses these to say, this is what it looks like when God is king. And then he accomplishes this restoration in his death. In his death, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus on the cross joins the exiles so that he can then lead them out and back to Eden. And in the resurrection, he shows that mission is accomplished because he didn't stay with the exiles stuck. Jesus came back out of the tomb, not just as Jesus' mutilated body come back to life. He comes out of the tomb as a new creation. We talked about it last week as the foundation of our restoration was in Jesus as he came out of the tomb. That's the new bodies that you will take on, I will take on, and the earth will be restored similarly. So what that means is the new Eden that Jesus is restoring his believers to is embodied in himself. The first installment of the new Eden is Jesus. So there's proof it's coming because he himself is tangible evidence that it's there already installed. 
And soon all will join him in that resurrection. And Eden will be restored upon the earth. Creation's curse will be reversed. And the nations will dwell with God. And everyone will live happily ever after. But that's yet to come. So now tonight we come to the next step. And this is where we find our place. So the climax is all bundled up in this trilogy. Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and tonight his ascension. <laughs> this is what's funny. Um, it's actually sad. The crucifixion gets all the attention. The resurrection gets, well, at least it has its own holiday. But frankly, Americans are kind of like, well, it's cool, but we don't really know what that means. So if you don't know, listen to last week's message. It'll help you. But even sadder is that the ascension gets like no attention. And the three together are absolutely important. So the ascension is what we look at now. What does the ascension mean? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say ascension? I'm talking about what we just read in verses 9 through 11, where Jesus finishes talking to the disciples. He's just risen from the dead. And then suddenly, Luke implies that he goes and floats up and disappears behind a cloud, and he's gone. And the angels say he will one day return that same way. That's the ascension. He's, he's lifted up, and he, he goes into heaven. Now... Let me clarify here where he goes, because it's a little confusing. We tend to think because of this, he goes up into the sky, and he keeps going, and oh my, and he suddenly just, a cloud unfortunately covered their vision, because otherwise they would have seen him like the space shuttle, just shooting out into the atmosphere, and who knows where he stopped. He just kept going, and good heavens, we wish that dumb cloud would have moved. Yeah, ridiculous. Because that's not how it, that's not what Luke is saying when he says root cloud. That's not the image he wants you to portray. Heaven, when Jesus ascends to heaven, do not think of earth and heaven somewhere above it. Because if you're down here in Australia, how can heaven be above you? You get it? Because the globe is, heaven is not just some like, up there, because that would also mean it's down there, and that's not good, because usually you say hell's down there, but it's not really, but that's what people say, and it's like, anyways, it's confusing, that's not the idea. Heaven is best understood, and this again, if you uh, missed last week, last week's message will kind of introduce some of this to you, heaven's best understood as present on the earth, it's here amongst us. But we cannot see, we cannot feel, we cannot experience because the curse that Adam brought on the world is like a veil that is blocking the blessings of heaven to earth. It's as if it separated us from heaven. And so I had a good question last week. um, Like, what does that mean? Where is it? It's probably that it's in another dimension. If you know things about dimensions, that means things can be present in our midst, but you can't see them and experience them. But when Jesus returns, the veil's lifted. The curse is gone. And this was, or this is awesome. It's like like creation's back to what it should be. It's, It's almost as if a bad dream just ended and everything's restored. So when it says that Jesus ascends to heaven, he's not going somewhere out there and kind of controlling the world from a distance like SimCity or something. Anybody ever play that? I love that game. Uh, That's an old generation thing, I guess. All right. Um, (laughs) You controlled your own city from a distance. (laughs) Anyways, when there's crime, you didn't have to feel it. Um, He's not like controlling the world like a computer game from a distance. He's amongst us. 
And so what heaven actually is, is it's the, it's the sphere where God dwells and reigns over. Heaven is like the control room. It's like the CEO's office. It's, it's where God works all things, and not from a distance, but amongst. He's, he's with creation, but other than creation. And Jesus ascends, if you will, it's kind of like he upgrades into heaven. He, he, if that's where God lives and rules from, then when Jesus gets there, he is ruling. He's in the sphere of control. Which is why, by the way, the Lord's Prayer prays, um, let, heaven, let, let your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. His will is done in heaven because he rules in heaven. And the prayer is that heaven comes to earth so that God rules on earth. So he's, he's, he ascends to heaven where he rules. What does that mean? It means that when we read Jesus going up into heaven hiding behind a cloud, he's coronated. This is enthronement day. This is Jesus climbing the hill to the throne and taking a seat at the right hand of God. The disciples realize, wow, Jesus is king of the earth. He's ruling over the earth from his throne, heaven. Now, is that really what Acts is trying to say? Because I don't see the word king in there. It is. This is where people like JC and I study for you guys. So we understand what do they think when they read things Acts is saying. This is what they think. (laughs) Jump back to their time period. Julius Caesar, he was in control a little bit before Jesus was born. Julius Caesar, he was the king of Rome, basically, the king of the world, because Rome ruled everything. When he died, rumor had it that the people saw his soul ascending into heaven. And his son, Caesar Augustus, when he takes a throne... He sees the advantage to people believing this. So he affirms the rumors as true. Yes, yes, you saw my father's soul ascend into heaven. You're right, he is indeed God. So guess what that makes me? The son of God and power in his hands with that title. And so news spread. Good news, Caesar Augustus is the son of God and he's ruling the world. And this was believed. Because if you didn't worship him, you were in trouble. Well, when Caesar Augustus dies, sometime during the life of Jesus, the same stories were passed on. They saw his soul ascend into heaven. And so Caesar Augustus' son, Tiberius, claims, I am the son of God. And so the thing kept going on. And Tiberius is the guy who's in charge during this time. So when the readers read that Jesus is ascending into heaven... They get exactly what Acts is trying to say. Caesar, Jesus. He's the real king of the earth, not Caesar. That's what they're trying to say. He's the one that ascends into heaven. He's the king of the earth. Caesar is his servant. Um, We also see that this is the message because of the mysterious cloud. Okay, again, if you think him going up and disappearing behind the clouds is kind of funny, it's because it is. I don't know that that's literally, it could have literally happened that way. I don't see why not, whatever. I mean, where else is he, you know, just, I don't know. Um, But the cloud, to me, what Acts wants us to think about is the Old Testament when it talks about the cloud. The cloud is an image that comes from Daniel 7 
verse 13 and 14. Now, we had a sermon on that some time ago, so some of you um, um, people who don't snooze and listen will remember (laughs) that that was a message about the Son of Man who comes to the throne of God, triumphs over the beasts of the earth, and is given the kingdom. And in Daniel 7.13, when it talks about the Son of Man, it says the Son of Man was in the clouds and he was given a kingdom over all peoples. So what Acts is doing is it's interpreting what happens here in light of Daniel 7, which is basically saying the Son of Man who sits at God's right hand is king over the earth. So Acts says he goes into the cloud because the cloud is the passage that talks about Jesus being king of the earth. So... Through those two points, ascending like Caesar and the cloud referring to kingship from Daniel 7, we get the point that Acts wants us to believe the ascension is coronation day. Jesus is king over the earth. And that message is how the church explodes early on. This isn't just some nice guy that we worship to feel better about ourselves. That message doesn't spread across the world in 30 years. But the message that the Son of God is king over the earth and seeks to restore man to Eden, that is a message that gets the nations excited. That's a message that's believed and people die for and that spreads. Jesus is king of the earth. Wait a minute, Brandon. Wait a minute. If Jesus is king of the earth then what do we do about evil and suffering? Because it doesn't look like he's king of the earth right now. The answer to that is that when Jesus ascends to heaven, the announcement is, I'm king, so restoration is happening. Restoration has begun... But it has not come. Jesus has begun the work of restoring nations, of replenishing creation. But the fulfillment and finality of it has not actually arrived. Heaven has not touched down on earth yet. So what we see is this intermediate period, this this between period. It's a lot like Israel's wilderness wandering. God comes and delivers Israel from the evil clutches of Pharaoh, and he's taking them to the promised land. Remember, we talked about the promised land was supposed to be a new Eden where everything's supposed to start over. Of course, they failed. He's taking them to the promised land. So what you have in between receiving the restored land and deliverance from exile is this big middle period where they're in the wilderness. And they're learning what it means to serve Yahweh as king. They're learning his laws. They're building the tabernacle. They're developing worship systems for all the nations to come participate in and be restored to Yahweh. And that wilderness period, that in-between, it's begun but it hasn't come, is where we sit. It's as if Jesus on the cross starts the exile as he comes out of the tomb, but we haven't actually inherited our inheritance yet. We are like Israel in the wilderness. We're worshiping Jesus as king until the kingdom comes. 
So that's why evil, that's why suffering, the curse is still here. There's people who still live their stories and say they're king, and others who oppose in every way the work of Jesus becoming king. People who kill the church, in other words. So that's why we still see evil, and that will definitely be done away with. So, in light of all this, we are now going to look at verses 6, 7, and 8. So he's king, this is what we do with it, okay? If he's king, what's the church? Servants of the king. So we have a commission. The king has a mission, and he he fuels his mission to us. His goal is to reign over the earth through his church. Just like he was to reign over creation through Adam. Gave him that commission. He's giving the church that commission. So, look at verse 6. We see that Jesus has just risen from the dead. Um, He's been talking about the kingdom with the disciples. Basically, he's talking about restoration and the plans of God and stuff. The story of God. And the disciples come up to him now in verse 6. And it says, when they had all come together, they asked Jesus, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Let's phrase that in our series wording. Basically, Lord, will you at this time restore creation to Eden? Restore the nations to yourself? It's a very good question. Everything they've seen Jesus do, he's in this resurrected body. They're thinking, he just rose. We're going to rise too, right? The resurrection's here. Is this the time? It's a very good question. Now, verse 7 and 8, Jesus answers the question. Now, I'm sorry, there's a lot of scholars, not the majority, but there's a lot, who will say that Jesus is actually rebuking their question. He's saying they were really misunderstood, there's not going to be some kingdom, they had the wrong perspective, they should have been focused on saving souls, instead they're focused on this kingdom thing, and Jesus is rebuking them. There's no kingdom, instead go save souls. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is answering their question. So listen to how he answers it in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, to answer your question, I'm inserting, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus answers their question in verse 7 by saying, Listen, the question isn't when will restoration happen. The question is how will restoration happen? Is this the time, Lord? And he says, when is not the issue. That's not for you to know. That's in my Father's hands. The issue is how. And then in verse 8 tells them how. You will receive the Spirit of God. He will empower you to be His witness so that you take the message that I am King to restore all the world to the ends of the world. Let all creation hear this message. That's how the kingdom is going to come about. So in other words, restoration doesn't come by waiting around for it. It comes by participating in it. To the chagrin of our church. (laughs) 
This is the church. Yeah, he just did everything. Go to Disneyland and wait for it to all finish up. But he says that's not the point. You're to be participating in my restoration mission. I, I'm ruling the earth through you. So go, be empowered, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, this phrase, witnesses, has been abused in the church. And it kind of scares us because we think of people saying, be a good witness for Christ and let's go witnessing. And, I mean, really good intentions. But this isn't what Jesus is saying. He's, he's not saying, go stuff your pockets with tracks, sit on street corners and pass them out to people. I mean, that may be good and all, but that's not what he's saying here. He's also not saying, go corner people, awkward, go corner unbelievers awkwardly in a corner and convince them to believe in Jesus. He's not saying that either. And neither is he saying, go and share with people your private beliefs and your faith. Especially in our country, that just doesn't seem to, well, it's good for you. He's not saying any of these things. What he means by be my witnesses is that we are his messengers declaring Jesus is king and we are the models of that message. That this, the church, is what it looks like when Jesus is king over the earth. Witnesses means we are messengers who model the kingship of Jesus over the earth. Idealistically. Okay, life, that's weird. (laughs) And everybody else is watching you. (laughs) Thinking what I'm thinking. So, to be messengers who model the kingship of Jesus is why we're born, it's why the church exists, it's why Tree of Life exists. This is our place in God's story. That we're messengers who model the kingship of Jesus. Now, this was Adam's mission in the Garden of Eden. To reflect the kingship of God to creation, to cultivate it and expand it to, verse 8, the ends of the earth. Well, Adam decided... Mm, I'll do that, but not to reflect the kingship of God, to reflect the kingship of kingship of me, because I can do this. Um, Israel's mission was the same thing, but, you know, Israel's kings did the same thing Adam did. So now Jesus assembles us and says, you're the new Israel, you're the new Adam. Let's go and declare my kingship, and let's demonstrate it by letting me be king through you. That This is what it looks like when God is king. So, Jesus wants to rule the earth through us. What does this look like? I thought of three examples that this looks like. Number one, so, when Jesus rules through us, we become cultivators of creation. And I think this is the biggest point. Because this is what man was made to do Master creation, cultivate it, and grow it, and find all the potentials in it. Like, you know, technology is really cool, okay? 
Apple, and I don't know what other pastors say and stuff, because, you know, sometimes we sound like we come down on technology. And, yeah, it has its badness to it. That's proper badness. Um, But it also is really cool. And something in us loves this stuff. Because man has been awesome to cultivate creation to find out how to make a touchscreen portable computer called an iPad. That's amazing. That's really cool. That's why we, most of all of us, really wish we had one, and I don't, so get me one. That's, (laughs) just kidding. That's really cool. That's man mastering creation. However, before I should, okay, I'll put this in here now. Apple is not actually a good example of mastering creation. Because, and I'll get to this in a second, but Apple is exploiting third world countries and ripping off people's lives in order to make this product and get extremely rich by selling it at prices ridiculously high. We all feel that sting. That's why we're all jealous of people who have these things. It's all over the news. Read about Apple's exploitation of employees. They, in fact, put up um, nets in their facility in China so that people would stop jumping off the building and killing themselves because that's how bad work environment is in the Apple company's processing plant. Okay, so, like, cool. We see what you can do with creation, but that is Apple saying we're kings over. We're, we're going to abuse creation. And actually, as we'll see, creation is corrupting us. So when Jesus rules through us, we become cultivators of creation to do cool things like that, but in a way that we remain in control of creation. Because you see, when Adam said, "Ah, God's not going to be king through me, I could be king myself, the curse happened. And creation was no longer mastered by Adam, but creation began to master Adam. And we see that illustrated with Cain and Abel how their use of their hands was no longer used to cultivate creation with sheep and and the fields like they did Abel learned how to no Cain learned how to use his hands against his fellow human being the creation itself with jealousy and, and murder was overcoming him we see it with Adam who is cultivating he's probably the first guy to do this so I don't know it's the first one in the Bible he's cultivating the vineyard to make wine woo wine or beer, whatever. He found to make this really cool drink, but we find him butt naked in his tent, passed out. Creation mastered Noah. And you go down the line, this is the history of man. We see that sex masters homosexuals. It masters the fornicator, the porn addict, and the pedophile. The abuser of children. Sex masters humanity. Alcohol masters humanity. It rules over the alcoholic. Medicine rules over those who are addicted to it. Whether it be pain pills or stronger forms called drugs. Work rules over the greedy. Where people lose their families and sacrifice their children for the almighty dollar. Becoming workaholics. Entertainment masters the board. Where we get, some of us get to the point where if we're not constantly entertained and we're out of touch with whatever we're in touch with, we go crazy. You're mastered by these things. That is not what the kingship of Jesus looks like. When Jesus is king through his church, we become the cultivators, not the cultivated. We become the masters of creation. So the good news, this is what's ironic. In Adam wanting to rule Himself, he actually became a slave to creation. And this is why it's good news that Jesus is king. We can all be free from our addictions and from creation's rule over us. Through Jesus, 
we can master creation once again. A people that allows Jesus to rule through them makes creation look wonderful. Now, because of our fallenness, and we're attempting to do this well, um, we can only imagine, but we see glimpses every now and then through the church. So, But I want you to imagine, what if all of us threw our story away and hailed Jesus as king and allowed him to rule through us over creation? Imagine what creation could look like. Imagine this. Imagine sex no longer using people as animals, but instead people using sex as an expression of uncompromised faithfulness between two lovers. That's what sex is supposed to be. We're supposed to be masters of it. It's a servant for us. But you look at the world, and sex has totally mastered the world. In the church, this is why we hold your purity and your chastity and all these scary words so highly. Because we, Jesus ruling through us, we're supposed to be in control of creation. Imagine alcohol no longer turning men into monsters or women into sluts. But rather imagine men and women using alcohol as a drink to fulfill our joy and fellowship. As the Bible says it was made to do. Can you imagine that society where bars aren't scary places? Where pastors um, <laughs> and church people aren't like taboo, in this taboo about alcohol and it's just something that we all enjoy just because it's a good drink? When Jesus rules over a people group, they master creation. But of course, we have our cautions with alcohol because there are many people that are dominated by it, even in the church. Um, imagine medicine no longer crippling Addicts in pain, just enslaved by it. But rather, imagine people in pain using medicine to heal themselves. And I know for the most part that happens, but there's a ton of people enslaved to medicine. When Jesus is king through people, medicine becomes the best thing on this planet. And of course, when he returns, we're not going to need medicine, but, you know. Imagine work no longer enslaving people. But imagine people using work as a way of celebrating and expressing their particular mastery over a section of creation. I mean, work is no longer, you gotta work this day, but I want this day off. No, you gotta work. Work now becomes Stephen's expression in loving mechanics and the way cars work and Jaden and Jeremy. Imagine that work just becomes that glorious celebration of your expression of what you're good at. That, to me, sounds like glorious work. Fortunately, for the most part, that is my job. But, sorry to make you jealous. <laughs> you guys will get your jobs, I hope. <laughs> um, imagine that entertainment no longer uses people's minds, but rather people's minds use entertainment to creatively display the glory of the Creator. Entertainment uses our minds. We're conformed by it. But imagine a creation where we take hold of entertainment and our minds can creatively construct the story of God and glorifying the Creator. That, 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 that avenue of creation is restored rather than corrupted. That's what it looks like when Jesus is king through us. We become cultivators of creation. As we let Him rule through us, He empowers us to rule over creation. The proper order must be there. Second, when Jesus rules through us, those ravished by the curse 
are restored. We know those ravished by the curse. We know alcoholics. We know those who have been raped. You go down the line, people have been ravished by the curse of this earth. Yet when Jesus rules through us, those people are welcomed, they're helped, they're restored to normal life. And further, this is where I got off the apple tangent a little too early, but when Jesus rules through us, we aren't ravishing people, we're restoring them. We're not exploiting people, but we're helping them. Okay, in businesses, owners are going to start treating and paying their employees fairly. They aren't going to try to be maximizing their income. They're trying to spread the benefit of restoration living with all people when Jesus is king through a business. So, you already heard me rant on Apple. X Apple out of that picture. Steve Jobs was the king, and I don't know who's the king anymore, who's the king now, but it's not God. But can you imagine an Apple company where Jesus is king? And we have the great cultivated creation at our fingertips. And the power that Apple has is starting to restore and heal third world countries. Make people's lives better who work for it. That is Jesus being king through us. And that is how you guys become missionaries. Not on the mission field. But at your typical workplace. If you become businessmen and women. Go down the line. Like, like mechanics. Imagine when Jesus is king through us. Mechanics don't prey on people's ignorance. They'll say, oh, this lady knows nothing. Your brakes are shot at 600 bucks. Oh, really? Hey, mechanics are wicked, some of them. But when Jesus is king, we can restore single women who have enough to worry about and say, you know what, this oil change is on us. Don't worry about it. It's reaching out to people. When Jesus is king through us, doctors take time to help their patients and to find out more about how to help their lives. If you're stressed. The doctors say, just, here's a prescription. But a doctor, when Jesus is king, says, you're stressed. Let's talk about your life. Let's talk about how Jesus can make this better. Let's talk about things. A doctor is more personable. And third, when Jesus rules through us, in this picture that we've just painted, that we begin cultivating creation, that we begin restoring those ravished by the curse, when Jesus rules through us, all of us are doing God's work. Not just pastors, theologians, and missionaries. Jacob is doing God's work. Nick is doing God's work. Because this message of the kingship of Jesus means that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and whoever you're with... You are expanding the restoration of Christ in you to the ends of your world through his kingship, his kingship working through you. So all of us are doing God's work. So I want us to investigate. Where are you? What are you doing? What is your loves? Who are you with? These things are your mission field. These things are God's work. As we allow God to reign through us, we begin to cultivate creation powerfully. We begin to restore those ravished by the cursed earth. And in doing so, we are all equally doing God's work. I don't like it when colleges have all those going on a missions trip over the summer stand up and they pray for them. And then they break assembly as if the doctors and those other people having normal jobs aren't doing God's work. I don't like that. 
I don't like it when we highlight the pastors. There's the one, I hear this all the time, I feel like, he's the one doing God's work. I want Tree of Life to take the commission that Jesus is king and we are thereby the messengers who model his kingship wherever, whatever, and with whomever we're doing things. That's God's work. And that's what he tells the disciples. And that's what Tree of Life is, do, is to do. And that is our place in God's story. So, look. Yeah, it's kind of um, To close here. The key is that we start to surrender our stories. We way too much occupy ourselves with how to control our lives. That's tiring. The apostles did what they did because they got it. They understood he's king. I don't control my life anymore. He's got it all figured out. All I need to worry about is doing his work. And the more that we let go of our story, and the more we immerse ourselves with God's story and what He's up to, also known as the gospel, the more that is immersed in our minds and saturated in our hearts, the more you will find yourself naturally doing God's work. It will no longer be this methodical, how do I restore people? How do I do this? How do I make this like God glorified? If you saturate yourself in a story, you're going to naturally take that on and do it through your own creativity. Because this is what I feel. I feel like most of us are like, well, uh, just imitate this model and we're helping people find Jesus. No. Be original. Be creative. And do it Christ reigning through you, whatever that means. Here's my example to close. I was just, I was thinking about it one day because I was so enamored the first time I started reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. I was like, whoa, I want to write a cool book like this. And not that I really thought I would, but I just thought I would sit down and start to think about ideas and see, how would you do this? Like, this, this is brilliant. And so I started to think about it. And you know what? I was ultimately frustrated. You know why? Because what I did is I saw Lord of the Rings. I saw um, the Chronicles of Narnia. And I said, wow, Tolkien and Lewis, their stories are just explosive with the gospel and what God's doing through all of those stories. I'm like, I want to write a story that mimics the gospel. And so I find myself sitting there thinking, how did this plot look? And I keep going to like the Bible and trying to compare it and trying to like make it look like the Bible, just like a little bit different. And I find myself frustrated. You know why? Because I wasn't being original. I wasn't being creative. I was trying to rigidly write a story and say, gospel in here, like fill in the blank. And unfortunately, that's when we hear Christian music and we hear Christian movies I mean, I know there's good ones, but there's a lot of cheesy ones too. And those cheesy ones are cheesy because they say, let's get the word out. So, gospel, write song around it, and it sounds really preachy and just like, just not very creative, not very original. What I realized through doing that was C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien were so immersed in the gospel and they were so well aware of what the story of God was and what he's up to in the world that without even thinking about, hmm, how do I portray the gospel? They simply wrote the story of their heart with all of their creativity and imagination and you see incredible reflections of the gospel naturally contained in it. And that's when I said, whoa, that's how you change the world. That's how you be original and creative. That's how you cultivate creation. You immerse yourself in God's story to the point that it bleeds out of you without even thinking about it or trying to do it. So let's let be God 
be king. Let's let Jesus rule through us. And just see what happens when we do that. So Father, I pray that you would make tree of life a people whom others look and say, Indeed, Jesus is king in that group. I see a return to Eden happening there. Father, make us the way. Help us to pull exiles into this exodus with us as we return to Eden, as we return to heaven and restoration. So as you said in verse 8, Lord, we pray that you fill us with your spirit, that your spirit would fall afresh on us, that you would melt us and mold us, use us and fill us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.